Amén. Well, please uh, turn back in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4 as we finish this series in the, the story of Ruth. It's page 269 of the church Bibles and also inside the service sheets is an outline uh, of where we're heading as we look one last time at Ruth together. Well, a human life uh, is a wonderful thing. Uh, having now been present at the birth of all four of my children uh, eight weeks ago most recently, I know uh, firsthand uh, just how wonderful human life really is, how amazing it is. And scripture declares that that feeling that a, that a father feels at that moment, and no doubt a mother as well, is a true one. To be human is to be created in the very image of the God who created us. It is to be a creature clothed, we're told in the Bible, with worth and splendour. And we know that from the human world around us, not just in children but all the human world, pulsing with so much potential, so much richness, so much capacity. We know how wonderful human life is, uh, even if we just think about our own lives and the multitude of experiences that we've had and those that we love have had. And so let me ask you this, if you were to put a value on all of this, what would it be? What is a life worth? It's got to be a lot, right? In one sense, despite all that I've just said, there are many signs in our world that human life is valued quite cheaply. Uh, From the ridiculous study that was done in in recent times which concluded that if you got together all the parts that make up a human body and you tried to sell them, that you would raise about three pounds. Or or a man in uh, Western Australia, and I hasten to say that he was a British man in Western Australia, uh, who decided to sell his entire life, his home, Uh, the contents of his home, uh, an introduction trial run to his job, an introduction to his friends, you name it, his whole life on eBay. And he sold it for 140000 in the end. And at the end of the auction he was quoted as saying, you know, I thought my life was worth a bit more than that. And really I think his quote is a suitable comment on the way our world values life. I thought life was worth more than that. We live in a world where often just as a human life is beginning at conception, as our God is himself fearfully and wonderfully knitting together this creature with all its personality, all its potential and capacity, uh, such a life is cut off. I thought a life would be worth more than that. And yet we live in a world where often as human life is nearing its end, when all potential seems near exhausted and when a personality is just a shell of its former splendour, we speed on the end. I thought life would be worth more but my heart barely skips a beat when I hear news of another British soldier dying in Afghanistan. I thought life was, my life was worth more, says the person seeking work in this current climate and facing rejection after rejection having been made redundant. I thought I was worth more, says the worker who's been chewed up and spat out by the market. Arthur Miller's play Death of a Salesman puts it best when he says you can't eat the orange and throw away the peel a man is not a piece of fruit but let's be honest in a world like ours you are one of six billion one of six billion that that must dilute your worth somewhat and yet the irony is that even though we live in a world where there, where there is one of six billion we live as if we are one in six billion the one In a world that uh, treats life cheaply, 
Uh, We try to be seen as worthy. We make it our ambition to be seen as worthy or at least worthwhile. So let me make this personal. What are you worth? I mean, how do you even assess something like that, your your own worth? Do you do it on your your value, uh, what others would pay for your life, like the man on eBay? Uh, Do you do it on your reputation, what others would say of you? Do you assess your worth by your family? In a world like ours, how many people care for you? Or perhaps you assess it by your future, the, the prospects, the potential that still awaits you. What are you worth? I suspect on our best days we'd rate ourselves quite highly but then there are other days when financial loss comes or our reputation takes a battering or our families fracture or the future seems uncertain and then our self-worth seems to go through the floor. It all seems so unpredictable, so fluctuating. Isn't there some sort of absolute value, our market value as human beings? Well again the Bible weighs in here and says this of your worth. God says, when you were born, I saw your very first breath. I rejoiced over you as a father. I saw your joys and your fears and your talents and your quirks. I saw them because you are mine. And then I saw you take glory and exchange it for shame. I saw you take truth, the truth about me and this world, and exchange it for a lie. I saw you and others take peace and exchange it for violence. I saw you as a father sees a child take every good gift he ever gave and mess it all up. I saw you leave your father's house and lock the door and turn away. You want to know what you're worth, having rejected the God who gave you life and breath and everything else? Well, hear these words from Romans 3 verse 12. All have turned away they have together become worthless. That's a shock, isn't it? I mean, even on our worst day, I don't think we would rate ourselves there, worthless. And that, for me, is why I love the Gospel so much, the true and very good word that God speaks into a world like ours, a world where life is held cheaply, a world where together we have become worthless. That's why I love the Gospel that is written all the way through this story of Ruth, a a story really about one big word, the word redemption. Redemption of something seemingly empty and worthless as we saw back in chapter 1. A story of buying something back with seemingly little gain in doing so and yet at great cost. And so here in this final chapter of the story of Ruth we are going to see that redemption unveiled And as it is, we're going to see the very burning heart of our God's purposes in a world like ours, redemption. And as we begin, here's a question worth having in your minds. It's the question that's been on Ruth's heart all along as she moved from Moab to Bethlehem to Boaz's field to the threshing floor and now finally to the city gate. Am I worth redeeming? Am I worth redeeming? Now this chapter is going to give us two answers, a resounding no and a resounding yes. First in verses 1 to 8 you see the resounding no, the one who will not redeem. Now as we begin looking at this chapter, and I hope you've got it open, page 269, we need to remember where we got to in chapter 3 with Ruth pursuing redemption with Boaz. She's met him at the threshing floor and Boaz has promised redemption. 
But the big question is who will do it? There is a nearer redeemer, there is a closer kinsman than Boaz who has the right, the obligation to redeem Ruth. And so Ruth returns to Naomi to wait to see what happens and Boaz starts to make plans to settle the matter. Verse 1, Meanwhile Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. And when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here my friend and sit down. And so he went over and sat down. And Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. I love this. Uh, We've been waiting for for redemption to come for for four chapters. We seem to be finally there and this master storyteller holds us with even more suspense. I mean, you've got all these guys walking up and sitting down and then someone else coming along and sitting down and you just want to say, just get on with it. But he holds us back because we have more to learn. And by verse 2, Boaz has assembled all that need to be there, the great and the good of Bethlehem, seated at the city gate, the place of trade, of exchange, where deals like this are done. And so he lays down the terms of this trade in verse 3. He said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to her brother Elimelech, our brother Elimelech. I thought, I thought I should bring this matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has a right to do it except you and I'm next in line. And now for those of us who have been listening into this story in recent weeks of watching this growing love between Boaz and Ruth, you almost want to whisper in Boaz's ear, what are you doing? Talk about the girl. Talk about Ruth. We want a wedding, not a real estate deal. Why begin here? Well, Boaz knows and those who first heard this story would know too that when it comes to the redemption of people, property comes first. The land had to be redeemed if Ruth was to be redeemed. There was a cost. And the buyer for that land had to come from within this family, within this clan. And this nearer redeemer, this no-name redeemer, and it's fascinating that he's not given a name. Virtually everyone in Ruth is given a name, even if they last one verse, but he's just no-name. He was obligated by law to buy this land, to see that it was not lost to the family. And so the offer of the land is set before him. And you see at the end of verse 4, he says, I will redeem it. Of course I will. I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, This is a tidy little deal, a a nice little investment, an expansion of his property empire. Of course I'll redeem it. Can you imagine as the story was read out, and it was read out yearly uh, to God's people, that they'd gather around the the adults and the children to hear this story. Uh, One of the five festal garments it was called, and it was read, and you can imagine this moment. They've all been waiting for this moment of redemption and to hear that this no-name guy is going to do it. It's all a bit deflating. You imagine the children yelling out, no, not him, we don't want him. But hold on, says the storyteller. Verse 5, then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. It's as if Boaz has said, just before we seal this deal, you need to see the fine print. For the nearer redeemer, the cost of this field was fine. It was a nice investment. But the question is, will he be just as happy, just as willing when marrying Ruth is brought to the table as well of bringing this woman into his family? 
And the answer he gives is crucial because redemption of property was not the only thing that God had commanded his people about. It was also the redemption of people that he was concerned about. And hear these words from Deuteronomy 25. It says, If a kinsman dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's kin shall marry her and fulfil the duty of a brother-in-law to her. And the first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead kin so that his name will not be blotted out of Israel. He is obligated to marry Ruth. It's his job as the kinsman redeemer. And so with everything on the table, the the land and now the marriage, what will this no-name redeemer say? You can imagine, can't you, a long silence as he weighs it up, as he does the sums in his head and and then it comes in verse 6. Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it for yourself, I cannot do it. And again, you can imagine them listening as it was read out, all the children sort of leaping for joy at last. We didn't want him anyway, he's out of the way. But you see why he's unwilling? It's going to damage his own inheritance, his own worth. Here is a man who knows what he's worth. And he looks at this deal and he says, I'm going to lose out if I go ahead with this. This is going to cost me. And it would have. He would have put forward the money for this land and then as soon as Ruth had a child, that son would have got the land, not him. All the cost was his and none of the benefit. And then there is the question of reputation. Do you notice Boaz makes sure he knows that she is a Moabite woman? This excluded nation, this nation that Israel was to have nothing to do with, that's who you'd be bringing in. And while we may be happy that this no-name redeemer is out of the way, we must see that he has renounced God's obligation here. Refusing, even though it is commanded of him, to show kindness to the living and the dead. He says, I don't care enough about this family, even though they're my kin. And he humiliates Ruth at the city gate. I will not redeem her. She is not worth it. Now to see how humiliating that is, uh, we need to again go to Deuteronomy 25 where these instructions about redemption are given and hear the humiliation of this being said in front of all the witnesses, I will not redeem you. A humiliation God takes very seriously. Listen to Deuteronomy 25. However, if a man does not want to marry his kin's wife, she shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and take off one of his sandals and spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his kin's family. And that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Now, I don't know whether you're searching around for perhaps some new insults to use. Uh, Here's one for you. The family of the unsandaled. Obviously a fairly potent uh, insult back then. I'm not sure it would carry much weight now. But there is great shame in what this man is doing. Great shame, not only for Ruth, but for him as well. Here is a man who holds human life cheaply. This no-name redeemer is rejecting their worth as people. And you almost wish Naomi and Ruth were there, not back in Jerusalem, to rip off his sandal and spit in his face. How dare you do this to your own family? And yet, ironically, in verse 8, the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and with no shame he removed his sandal. Mr. No-Name Redeemer exits, stays left, and once more our attention turns to Boaz, the one who will redeem. Now, all the way through this, this no-name guy wouldn't even do this out of duty, but Boaz, this isn't a duty thing. He is willing to do this. 
All the way through chapters 3 and 4, this idea of being willing to do something is there and it's a Hebrew word filled with passion. To be willing is to go well beyond duty. It's to feel great favour, great love for something. The one who is willing is the one who does not merely do it as a duty. He loves to do it, delights in it. No name was willing while it was just land, but as soon as marriage is added, his willingness fades away. But Boaz, the one we have got to know over these chapters, his heart is filled with love for this woman. This woman he spied across his field. Remember that as he ran across the field to talk to her? The woman he'd spent those precious moments with in chapter 3 on the threshing floor who'd said, I choose you, Boaz. Well, now he chose her. Whatever the cost, he is willing to redeem. And let me tell you, your God is like that. Do you know that of him? Your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, ran into this world to buy back worthless things. People like you and me. People who need a Redeemer and yet cannot find them, no matter how many no-name Redeemers we try in this world. We can't find them because everyone else looks out for their own interests like this no-name guy, but not him. No, he's willing. And on the cross he says, the matter is settled, it is finished. And so I want you to see this morning in chapter 4, in this final look at this story, see in Boaz but a hint, a shadow of your Redeemer. I want you to see this so that you take delight in him this week. Let me leave you with four things to savour about your Saviour, the Lord Jesus, and here's the first. Your Redeemer is the one who pays the price. You see there in verse 9, Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Malon. And what I love about this is suddenly the the price, the cost seems to have gone through the roof. Back in verse 3 it was just a piece of land and now it's all the property, everything. I'll buy the lot, he says. And he's not just buying a a share in Elimelech's family, he's not aiming to be the majority stakeholder, it's a takeover, complete takeover. Whatever the cost, the Redeemer says, I'm willing. And is that not true of your Redeemer? Whatever the cost, and it was high, wasn't it? I hear the testimony of 1 Peter chapter 1 where it says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. The Lord Jesus has bought the lot when it comes to you. Only he could only he was rich enough and only he was willing. And you want, to, you want to know how to measure your worth? Don't look at your puny bank account or your house or your shares or your superannuation or whatever it might be. Are you kidding? Go to him on the cross. The one who says, I bought you at a price. You are not your own anymore. I'll buy you back. Your redeemer is the one who pays the price. Secondly, your redeemer is the one who claims you publicly. Did you notice that as Ruth chapter 4 was being read out, just how careful Boaz was to make sure that there were witnesses there. He, he kept making sure that everyone who needed to be there was there. And then in verse 9, we're told the elders, and in fact all the people are there. And he says to them, you're all witnesses of what's about to happen. It's wonderful. As he takes Ruth, this Moabite woman, this worthless woman in, in a nation like Israel, he's not ashamed. This is no backroom deal, this is public. He wants everyone to know. I'd pay anything to be with Ruth. 
Your witnesses, she's with me. And again, see your Redeemer in this who buys you back, those who have rejected him and he's not ashamed. He publicly says, I'd pay whatever it costs to buy them back. Hear these remarkable words from Hebrews 2, speaking of your Redeemer. It says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed. And I reckon there's a challenge here. To hear that your Redeemer, the Lord of heaven and earth, is not ashamed of you, not ashamed to publicly acknowledge you as his, it raises the question, are you ashamed of him? Is your relationship with him some backroom deal, secret? One of the myths found within Christian communities is that our faith is a private thing between us and God. Well, this says that's complete rubbish. Your Redeemer would tell anyone he's your brother, anyone. And he expects the same of us. He expects you to claim him publicly at the city gate, at work, at the pub, at Probus, at home, you name it. To be a redeemed follower of the Lord Jesus is to confess with your mouth that he is your Lord. Now, you want to know where your worth is in this world? Don't listen out for what others will say of you. Listen instead to what your Redeemer says of you. He says, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're with me. Now there's a reputation worth clinging to. And here's the third thing. Your Redeemer is the one who welcomes you into his family. Now that's what Boaz is doing here ultimately. He, he's not just making some trade here. This is personal. He is taking Naomi and Ruth into his home. Did you see it there described that way in verse 11? That Ruth is coming to his home. And the blessing in verse 11 says it's going to be a big family. Leah and Rachel were prodigious mothers and Ruth will be as well. And Boaz says to her, let's build a big family together. Again, behold your Redeemer and see the difference his love has made to you. One of my favourite verses in the Bible, 1 John 3.1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Christian, however wonderful your own family life is or has been or however difficult or dysfunctional or divided, please don't measure your worth there. Instead, measure it by this. The God who made this earth calls you his child and you are free to call him father and his son is your brother. One final one. Your redeemer is the one who secures your future. Do you see the reason Boaz gives for redeeming Ruth and Naomi in verse 10? It literally says his fear is that if he doesn't do this, they will be cut off from their inheritance. They will be cut out, cut off from the land of the living, basically. Well, no-name redeemer's fear was that his inheritance would be cut off, would be damaged in some ways, but Boaz's concern is the opposite. And your redeemer is the same because he knows that without him you will be indeed cut off. And so instead, take this in. Hear the words of Isaiah where it says, he was cut off from the land of the living for you. And because of that, your future is secure. Your inheritance with him is secure. And so don't try to measure your worth by whatever plan for future you're hoping and dreaming for. Measure your worth by the future that his death has won for you, that is guarded for you in heaven. And so do you see the difference your Redeemer makes in a world where life is held cheaply, where together we've become worthless, 
your Redeemer comes and although you and I are worth nothing, he pours on us amazing dignity, freedom from debt, public declaration, family and a wonderful inheritance yet to come. As the story moves to its close, we have this wonderful picture of Naomi who back in chapter 1 was empty and bitter and her family had come to an end or so it seemed, now cuddling Ruth's baby, delighting in how God had all the way through this been plotting for her redemption, plotting for her good. And once more here the storyteller wants us to see just how much bigger this really is, how God had indeed been plotting for redemption in Moab, in the fields of Boaz, in the threshing floor and now at the city gate, but not just for Ruth and Naomi. As he did, he was plotting a king's arrival. And we close with a genealogy where we're given a list of fathers whose line lead to the very king who was after God's own heart, King David. Within two generations of Boaz, Samuel would enter through this same city gate looking for that king, only to find him in these same fields, the fields where this Moabite woman took shelter under God's wing. And then it would be 28 more generations from David until a young woman named Mary would ride on a donkey through this same gate, the one where Ruth was purchased. And she would give birth to the king of kings who would by his blood purchase men for God from every tribe and tongue and race. And God was plotting redemption much bigger than we could possibly imagine. Let's pray.